Howdy folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pearls Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, we're building on our conversation about multi-species grazing with a discussion with somebody actually doing this in practice. We speak with Joshua from Resilient, a consulting agency that works with regenerative farmers across South America, as well as here in the southeastern United States. We talk about the actual practice of grazing, as well as the settler colonial mindset that infiltrates a lot of regenerative agriculture. So hopefully you guys enjoy this conversation, and it helps frame up some of those theoretical constructs in a way that's helpful and more meaningful. So take a listen. Joshua, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. First, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your work with Resilient? Uh, well, thanks for uh, having me here. I'm uh, excited to be a part of this podcast. Um, I uh, Well, my name is Joshua. Uh, I uh, am a regenerative agriculture specialist, and my, uh, my main focus in the past 10 years has been designing, building out, and managing uh, profitable regenerative farms uh, around the world, basically. And a lot of that has fallen under the kind of the umbrella of my, uh, of my consulting firm. It's uh, pretty small. It's mostly just me. Uh, and, uh, but I do freelance out to some uh, pretty awesome friends for uh, things that they're specialized in that I don't really know anything about, like uh, hydrological engineering. And, uh, you know, kind of a generalist within regenerative agriculture, I work in, uh, you know, uh, cash crops, so you know, vegetables, food crops, uh, uh, you name it, cover crops. And but uh, my probably what impassions me the most is being uh, a pasturist. You know, being passionate about pastures, about grazing, uh, specifically regenerative grazing. It's uh, what I enjoy most. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, my personal passions right around that same area. So I I can appreciate that. Um, so one of the things we've been working on or talking here about is specifically multi-species grazing. I personally do a bit of multi-species grazing. I have sheep, chickens, ducks, and turkeys, and, um, you know, it comes with its own challenges that might not be super evident when, um, you're like, oh, I already do these things separately. How is it going to change when I start putting them together? Mm -hmm. And, um, when you got into this type of stuff, did you, was multi-species grazing something you'd been exposed to before the theory or was it like a happy accident or did you read about it and said, Hey, let me, let me try this. Uh, or was it a little bit of both? It was a bit of both, you know, um, not, 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 uh, I saw some working examples of it in Latin America, uh, without it being called multi-species grazing, but it just so happens that, um, you know, small, uh, agricultural landowners, um, are doing you know mixed species grazing because they have one you know they have cows for dairy they have goats for clearing brush they have chickens for their eggs and they're all just kind of mixed in together even if they're not doing um even if they're not grazing them uh in a regenerative fashion uh with like high stocking density and all that uh but they do understand the benefits that they are to following uh the goats um you know, using goats to clear up an area first, actually, and then bring in the cows once those grasses start to come up from under. Um, so I was exposed to that a little bit, and but really, it was the it was coming upon the theory um, and and putting it in practice. I mean, really noticing that uh, I I when when I started with grazing, I was doing uh, exclusively sheep, 
And I realized that there's just, you know, despite the high stock density, um, there were still uh, things that could become more efficient on pasture in terms of my labor, um, where there was just some plants that, that the sheep would leave behind. And, and I found that when I mixed in the herd with, uh, you know, so example, followed it by chickens, I realized that the fly count was low. And the chickens were basically depositing all these fly larvae into fertilizer uh, straight onto the onto the acres, you know, onto, onto the pasture. So every single time we came around, once I started doing multi-species grazing with goats and cows and sheep and uh, and chickens, every single time we came around to graze that same spot, it was better than last at infinitum. So next year was even better. And I, you know what I mean? Sounds about right. You know, it's interesting that you say that the first example you saw wasn't based in like any, um, I guess, like within like a framework that was based on any like academia or anything like that. Right. That it was based on like more traditional practices. So the chicken and other species thing is just like wild. And I, I personally, even though I do it, it's I struggle with it because of the fact that chickens don't adhere to the same laws as other species. They do not. No, they're, they're like the pigeons on the power lines that just don't get bothered <laughs> by electric fences. And you're just like, how? And yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was kind of curious, like, so do you generally um, work them through like as a flirt, like a flock and herd, or do you do like a leader follower system? Or is it based on like other conditions? Right. Um, that's a good question. Uh, it, it's currently given the amount of um, of chickens I have on pasture, I, they are not enough chickens in order to set up a paddock big enough for them that is uh, the size of the paddock for the other larger grazing critters in order to follow behind them efficiently. Um, and I can't mix them either because their fencing needs are completely different. The cows, uh, sheep, and goats use three, you know, three-wire electric uh, fencing Whereas chickens, you have to use a netting or else, you know, there will be predators or they will get out. And um, so I, I, I am just kind of moving the chickens around the whole farm uh, in their small paddock uh, every three days with electric netting. Uh, and they are move, they're basically moving around the farm a lot slower than the grazing critters are. So they're, they're all on the same loop, but they're not moving at, this, on this, at the same speed uh, around the loop. So they're basically, you can basically put them this way. They're two different planets following an orbit, but uh, the orbit it takes for, you know, it takes Jupiter a whole lot longer to, to make the orbit sure. around the sun than the Earth. Yeah, and then I'm guessing you probably also beef up your chicken density during the spring because I'm sure you're slaughtering some of them. So maybe they play a little bit of catch up at that point. I, 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 I'd be hoping to, but at the moment, uh, and, and that is the ideal scenario. Yes. Uh, and I'm trying to ramp up the operation here to about a thousand laying hens, which would uh, work even better to speed up that orbit per se, you know, to catch up with each other. Um, sure. but, um, currently the place I'm at has a no kill policy actually, which oh. is something that we're, we're kind of, uh, figuring out with, uh, sort of ethics policy uh, sorry ethics committee that we're coming up with soon uh, although most of us are on board with the idea that you know uh, meat uh, and eggs and milk are a fantastic byproduct to carbon sequestration which uh, is a way that we can connect with local communities through this you know carbon positive product 
that is of a much higher, uh, you know, culinary quality. You know, it's delicious. It's better for you. It tastes better. You know what I mean? Yes, but that's something we're working on. Oh, cool. So, like you were saying that you've got this system set up right now. Is this kind of something you've done as a plug and play in other places, or is it completely based on local conditions? Right. Good question. Uh, it it uh it always depends. Every every farm uh, is different, uh, and, and and the farm is not just uh, that which you see with your eye. It's also the the invisible variable variables, and the invisible variables here are uh, the surrounding community, what sort of demand there is out here, you know, what what sort of things are farmed around, what what bios what biosphere are we in, you know, like what kind of bioregion this is, like what plants are the ones that are most likely to to grow. Is it grasses? Is it forbs? Um, are we in uh, a transition ecosystem? You know, um, so 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 there is a little bit of plug and play, uh, but ultimately, even that which I plug and play in has to be really specifically modified and tailored to this to this scenario. Uh, so in, in this case, th this project particularly has required a lot of uh, fine tuning. Is that um, uh, given that it? Go ahead. Oh well, well, the 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 reason for which is that um, it's uh, <laughs> it's hard to explain. But the the there's not really a lot of demand around here for for regenerative or organic produce uh, or you know products. We're about two hours away from any market that would that would enjoy such a thing, and there aren't uh, any really you know small uh, butchering facilities around here either which would you know fall within the standards of not being like a factory slaughter facility you know what i mean sure yeah those are tough they've been mostly pushed out of business at this point they have they have it's it's a it's a complete tragedy to think that we put in all you know myself and other farmers and folks like yourself you know unless if we're butchering for ourselves which i you know i do and i'm, I'm not bad at it, but that that's not something i can sell the market on sadly um but you know it, it's a shame that we Put in so much work to uh, do regenerative grazing, sequester carbon, uh, off, afford these animals these wonderful lives, very similar to what it would have been like in the wild, perhaps even in the diversity of what they're eating, the kind of stimuli they have, and then to load them up in a trailer and drive them four hours away, a stressful scenario. Obviously, the carbon emissions and and driving them there, and then this you know awful you know pretty mechanized uh cold factory slaughter facility you know which isn't that mom and pop slaughterhouse you know it's uh, it's a different experience it, it just doesn't it just doesn't add up yeah it doesn't fit into the ethos yeah 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 one of the things that i find with a lot of folks when they say hey i've got chickens i'm ready to take the next step to like whatever sheep i, I generally recommend sheep because they're like lazier goats is the way i describe <laughs> yeah. them they'll, they'll get they'll get out but they're not like like a goat that no matter what you do will get out you can kind of control sheep within reason um they'll eat most things but they won't literally eat anything that they can get their mouths on they're like just right. one step below and um despite the the reputation they have i find them to be super hardy so like when people are getting ready to take that next step of incorporating something a little bit more and they're like all right well i want to also you know, either do this flirt system where they're rotational grazing or uh, some kind of leader follower system or something like that. I think a lot of people start getting really paranoid about stuff like trying to 
track whether or not they're grazing enough or overgrazing. And that can be like a, a really big challenge because you have to deal with the fact that they just don't eat everything in a paddock. They're stomping down a bunch, they're pooping and peeing everywhere. Yeah. Like it and then it's like, well, did they eat enough? Like should I did I like when do I move them? So like how how do you um like work with folks that are newer to this to try to walk them through that kind of process? Right. So through through what process? You, you mean um like trying to estimate and gauge like whether or not the the paddock has been grazed enough or overgrazed or undergrazed uh because it can be really tough once you've seen like once you've intensively yeah. grazed like a paddock for the first time and you look at it and it's trampled but there's still tons of large grass it's like, right. well, does it need another day or is it ready to move it's hard to tell uh, you know i um i i used to be of the uh you know when, when i started with this i used to be of the school of thought of you know, uh, graze to about three or four inches, uh, and just try to leave as much ground cover as possible when you're grazing. But then I, I realized, you know, that when you do that, they're, they're the first thing, you know, they're, they're grazing down to four inches first, their top quality grasses, the ones they like most, then they're eating the second picks and the third and the fourth. And then eventually, you know, they, they come back to that first grass and bring it down to the first inch. Uh, and then everything else is is shading it out and not competing it. So now I do total grazing. So what I do is I do you know high density, uh, low duration nonetheless, but I'm grazing everything down uh, to about like even an inch, you know, pretty or, or or two, you know, pretty pretty short, so that everything has an equal opportunity to to regrow. You um, really push it close to overgrazing, like intense in terms of like making sure that there isn't that longer stuff that's been just stomped down, still kind of like sticking out sideways and all that good stuff. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. It really depends on the forage. You know I mean? Sometimes if, because out here, I like having mixed, mixed pastures, you know, it's just like, you know, you can't offer animals a monoculture of a diet or else they're just not simply not going to perform well. The only thing they're eating is fescue and clover. The pastures here have, you know, 10 different types of grasses and other 10 different types of forbs. Uh, a lot of them are wild, you know, um, either native or invasive. And so they're getting this huge um, spectrum of different minerals and nutrients that are, 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 are helping them with, with not just with like putting on fat and, and, and putting on muscle, you know, but also with staying healthy. You know, there's digestive bitters in there. There's, uh, you know, raspberry leaves, which are poning the uterus of the of the sheep uh and and you know preparing them for lambing so that's why you know i i, I push them a little bit harder on the and, and it's it's given much better results actually awesome so what i always tell people just to keep an eye on their critters see how their rumens are doing how you know how alert do they seem when you when you come around uh are they if they're not eating are they ruminating are they looking at you like starting to be like come on let's get, you know start start talking to you like get us out of here because you never want that situation, which has happened before, where sometimes it happens like in, in an instant where like it looks like there's enough forage. Suddenly they eat it all down and they're like busting down the fence. You know, I, <laughs> I, had, a, I had a cow here like two months ago that she just couldn't wait to get out. And, and I, I pushed them a little bit too hard in that paddock. I got busy doing something else. And when I came back, I was like, holy smoke, there's nothing here. And she was like, yep, there's nothing here. She jumped right over, heading into like the, the neighbor's like 1,000 acres of peanuts. And I was oh. like, this is about to be a disaster. So I try to move them right before it gets to a point. Yeah, it's wild what they can do once they get hungry. Uh, so in those paddocks, you talked about you've got this really big diversity. Is that 
something you've planned for in terms of like seeding or do you just let nature kind of take its course in terms of what's growing on pasture yes yeah well, well i just i right now because uh we're so low on funds i'm letting nature take its course there's plenty of grasses and forbs out here that are super nutritious and and are seeding themselves um that you know the the cost even though the cost of seed uh is like per acre for for from some nice stuff is like you know fifty dollars an acre or something we just can't even afford that right now sadly um but there's plenty of stuff growing out there that is really nutritious and and a lot of it is native you know native things uh so i'm totally happy with it yeah see you know it's funny like i when you talk to folks like yourself that are doing a lot of pasture work and you say like $50 an acre, uh, I'm working with like a very low pH site and like, I got it. Oh boy. I, I don't have a lot of, uh, it, it takes a lot more seed to get some germination coming out of it. So I end up spending yeah. like a lot more. Um, yeah. So it, it's a fun game of trying to build up biomass and essentially it's like, I guess like in war when they send that first batch through and you know, they're all going to die into oh, battle gosh. like that that's like my first like round of seeding it's like you guys are gonna make it for a little <laughs> while but you're building that biomass for the future it's fine yeah yeah you know i'd i'd uh, recommend for you before you ever even fertilize um if you know before you even fertilize ever uh one of your fields up there if you have low ph uh the most bang for your buck that you will get out there is the lime yeah uh to introduce lime and lime not only adjusts the ph but lime also has tons of other micronutrients in it like magnesium um which is so essential to pasture growth um and then that'll really make a difference with like yeah creating more biomass uh, you, you you could tell a difference i'm now coming up in the fall and uh then in the spring uh either of those is a great time to apply lime yeah I, I just spread some out actually last week awesome um, so the soil when we moved here was at like four and a half ph or something like that so oh, wow. it's a pine forest and they it, were near the highway, so they stripped all the topsoil when they built the oh, highway out, um, which is also why I could afford it. But uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's like it's come up quite a bit. But like, you know, yeah. even with using ash and lime and, you know, lime only it doesn't have a permanent effect. Um, no. So no. It, it is what it is. And I'm hoping with the biomass, like I said, you just keep dumping it, let it grow and just build up and eventually yeah. we'll be in a better place. It just it takes time. A living soil with tons of organisms, with tons of, you know, microorganisms, they will balance the pH out for you. Exactly. Just, it takes time. And yet again, building that biomass, you can't do it overnight. Yeah. I mean, you could bring you in, know. you know, dump trucks worth of wood chips and compost, but then, you know, that's, it, to me, that seems not regenerative. Um, like it, it it's better than what, you know, the alternative, I guess, but it's not like, I, I would rather go through the process and know that like I, I did it instead of just like buying my way to um, what I want. Um, yeah. So you you talked a little bit about like the fact that you do this like mixed grazing system. Um, so you mentioned like the fencing. Um, I want to ask like how have you found a way to make uh, like the mob grazing a little bit more efficient in terms of fencing? Because I find a lot of folks get burnt out from the constant rotations. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh that's definitely a challenging part of it. That's uh that I might even say uh is could be one of the potential drawbacks to mixed to like a mixed uh, species grazing because instead of just running one line for cows, now you're running three. And 
and sometimes and it probably a lot of people that use Gallagher reels or other electric reels might definitely relate to me when I say this. But when you're pulling the reels to put uh to, to you know to, to string up the fence, those damn reels love getting snagged uh yeah. and and kind of caught up at the beginning and you have to walk back and undo it, keep reeling out, it gets not it's it's a nightmare. You know, it's um there has to be a better way to do it. Now a couple couple things I've noticed. Um, one of them is with this current snagging Gallagher reels uh, situation. Um, I keep my moves to max every three days. I cannot do them every day. It would, it, it just there's no way. There's just no time for it. Um, so I do every three days, and that still sticks in within you know how long it takes grasses to start regrowing and to not enter into shock. And, uh, and, you know, I, ideally, uh, you would have a lot of cross fencing, kind of like parallel cross fencing or console farm, where you would just have to do, uh, one front end, um, uh, electric fencing line that you're just moving along and they're, they're you know, they're kind of moving forward with you. And sometimes you don't even have to put a back end on it because they're not going to go back and eat. They just want to keep going forward and eating this new stuff you're opening up for them. Um, yeah. and, but that's tough because not all terrains allow for all this parallel fencing. You know, sometimes you're up in the hills of, you know, of, uh, of Tennessee or something. You know, it just doesn't work out. Now, something new that has come out that I am extremely interested in and so curious about is virtual fencing. I've heard so much about it. Oh, boy. I think this could be a game changer. I, um, I have spoken to two different farmers that are um, uh, on these pilot programs for, uh, for one of these companies i forgot if it's vents uh or which one it is it doesn't matter but they have said marvelous things about it uh they said that their cows trained up really easily to it and it's really as simple as you know getting on the app and set, drawing up the paddock putting the cows and the cows pretty much get themselves into the paddock and that's it uh and then you have to catch the cows every like four months or something to switch out the batteries or recharge them uh, but you got to catch your cows every four months anyways to, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, deworm, you know, or whatever it is, yeah, whatever, whatever routine do. things you got to do, you know. Right. Uh, and I think I am confident in saying that uh, virtual fencing is going to be that thing that gets uh, regenerative grazing to critical mass. It's what's going to make this easier, uh, more accessible for, for yeah, those of us that are rightfully so getting burnt out by by these daily moves you know it's not easy it's not easy yeah absolutely um so for folks that aren't familiar uh this this system is essentially like a like an electric fence for a dog except it's like done with i'm not even sure is it like lasers like how how does it work exactly do you know it, it's a it's a satellite position so, so you actually have kind of like a um um kind of like a relay station out there that kind of tracking where all the animals are moving uh, and they have collars on them. Uh, and then that kind of sets up the, yeah, that kind of sets up the, uh, the boundaries via GPS. So a lot of it is just basically GPS shot collars. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting stuff. Like I, I, I wish there was an easier way to like manage it for like chickens, but that's probably just, that's a lot of shock. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't see chickens doing well with collars or I guess no, even like no. an ankle bracelet or something like that, or even understanding right. it. Um, yeah. Whereas I they, think they just, they just run through it and just be miserable. 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah. My thought with chickens is that chickens, um, they eat, you know, I've seen people that have, imagine like a big, a huge grass pasture, something like what you see in, I don't know, some of these flatter states um, or, or something nice and open like Montana, Wyoming. So where, where you only have to move around the, the mobile chicken coop. And the chickens, uh, they're not going to stray too, too far from the chicken tractor because that's where their food and their water is. Um, so they're not too interested in going way beyond in danger. And then at night, they just come right up to the roost, go to sleep, and, and uh, shut the doors. And it, you know, it, it's kind of solar powered and shuts the doors on them uh, sure. when the sun sets. And this could work, but not every, most farmers don't have this. Uh, you know, here, if, if, uh, if the chickens go any bit further, they're going to end up on the road. Or end up in the jaws of the neighbor's dog. You yeah, know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I've got some of those chickens that are testing the boundaries of the, <laughs> the highway in my neighbor's dog. But yeah, you know, they will. some of them will They'll learn. Find out soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey there, it's Andy from the Porporals Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell. This content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. So I want to ask, have you um, done any of this work with civil pasture systems, or do you primarily work in pasture? Yeah, t- tons of civil pasture. Yeah, um, and not always intentional civil pasture where uh, these, you know, some trees were planted for the purpose of being in a civil pastoral system. A lot of times it's been... Um, um, you know, where I'm consulting for someone, they have an orchard that is five, 10 years old or older. And they're like, what do I do about all these weeds, you know, <laughs> below my trees? It's a mess. I have to mow them. I'm like, what if you could do regenerative grazing down here? A lot of times they have these orchards fenced off already. And there's water. What if, what if we do regenerative grazing down here? It keeps your weeds, your, you know, quote unquote weeds down. You're increasing soil, uh, organic matter. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's basically helping out your trees and you have a second enterprise under your orchard. Now you're making twice, um, you know, what you're making per year uh, on this acreage. So you have, your, you have to, you know, you're basically making your business more resilient. You know, hence the name of my, my consulting firm. You're, you're making your business more resilient now. You know, now you have, you know, these animals running uh, and, and basically doing the same moves, but underneath trees. And if they're lucky, you know, they're eating, you know, they might be eating fallen fruits and nuts. Uh, they're eating acorns, you know, really high in, in uh, protein. Uh, or in, down in Florida, you know, where I was consulting on a project, they're eating fallen mangoes. It's like, man, these are the luckiest cows. You know, people right? pay a fortune for mangoes. And these cows are just eating them right off the ground. Come on. Um, yeah. And then up here, uh, we're doing uh, most of the silver pasture I'm doing here is with pines uh, in pine forest uh, silver pasture. Is that for timber? I'm, get, I'm assuming. Right. These are pines that were put in for CRP. Yeah. So they're, they're here for timber. Um, although there's plenty of stuff growing underneath them. They're, they're not the oldest pines. They're, they're really only about, some of them are about five years old or something. 
Um, so there's a good number of uh, a good bit of understory uh, there, which is super nutritious for anything, cows, you know, chicken, sheep, goat. So managing that is interesting. I wish I could integrate more fire into the management of it to kind of uh, take care of some of the more noxious invasive weeds that some of them, which are quite toxic uh, for livestock, but you know, just something else that, um, uh, you know, has to get figured out. Sure. I, you had mentioned you'd done some work in uh, Latin America and South America. Yeah. So I'm really interested. I know in Brazil, they've been doing these, uh, I think it was Brazil. I read these, uh, pasture blocks, like silvo pasture blocks where they would like chop a, a stump at like two feet and let the regenerative growth from the coppicing, like make these like fodder blocks that they would intensively yeah. graze. Have you seen any of that? Absolutely. I've never done it, nor have I seen it in person actually, but I, I've, I've seen a lot of content about it. I think it's fascinating. Coppicing is an, a really old, an old time thing. And, and the great thing about that is that the fodder that the trees produce is actually accessible for the critters. Uh, whereas in a lot of other silvopastoral systems, you know, they're really just, you know, up high and the, the critters aren't really, you know, reaching a lot of these leaves. Uh, it's just providing them with shade. The, the roots are, you know, providing another function, et cetera, et cetera, or fixing nitrogen. You see what I mean? Yeah, it's definitely a technology that could be appropriately used in a silvopasture system to break up the, the canopy in specific ways, create microclimates and things like that. That could be really, yeah. I think, interesting. Absolutely. Positively. Uh, so I was, I also wanted to ask, um, like, uh, having done work in those areas, have you seen anything more, um, unique or anything that's kind of influenced how you're doing things here, uh, in more temperate climates that you're like, oh, I've never seen anyone do something like that. Fa farmers down there in Latin America are faced by such different factors, uh, than they are here in the States that I think they're. I think or, or no, the rate of adoption for regenerative grazing practices in Latin America are catching on much quicker than they are here. He, in Latin, I mean, and a lot of it has to do with poverty is such a, a driving force to, you know, and your farm being at rock bottom is such a driving force to being like, we got to do this better because we're, there's, we, no, it can't get any worse. And here, uh, a lot of the a lot of the thing that's kind of got it in the way of, of, uh, of regenerative agriculture, no-till practices, regenerative grazing is the kind of nonsense, um, uh, gosh, what do you call it? <laughs> Sorry, subsidies. Um, you know, the whole subsidy system and the way uh, crops are insured, uh, you know, work with the FSA, that is kind of keeping farmers doing things the way um, they've always done, even if it's super destructive, because it pays out. It, it, it pays out even if their soil is being completely demolished uh it still pays out in these uh, subsidies or or you know payouts from fsa insurance yeah and 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 you know the rest of us in latin america we don't have this luxury you know, you know we don't have the commodities and that might be a good thing uh, although i wish farmers did have you know more support from their governments down there they generally don't uh, but what I'm saying is, uh, it's it's really pushing people into doing regenerative grazing because they're like, we got to make this, we got to make this more profitable. A lot of times, it's really just you know, that's how I get in the door with a lot of farmers in the first place to even do this work. If I'm like, let's save the planet, you know, like we are literally are living in an extinction event right now. Uh, this is really bad. Ah, you know, whatever. Okay, how about this? You could be making more per year. 
uh, and spending less on your farm. Okay, now I'm all ears. Come on, <laughs> you know. Then yeah. I'm in the door, and then when they see it work, and it kind of starts clicking in their heads, and they're like, "Wow, the Earth! It's this thing. You know, it's this. It's this holistic experience, a, a living, breathing being, I guess. That if you know that everything kind of reciprocates. You know what I mean? Sure. Then it starts clicking, but." It's the dollars and cents that gets me in the door first uh, yeah, to talk to. I mean, money talks whether or not we want it to. That's the way the world works. It's the way the world works for now, at least. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I'm really curious more about like some of your work down in the uh, Latin South America. Yeah. Because it's it's uh, it comes with a different uh, baggage than here in the United States in a lot of ways because of uh, I think a lot of indigenous knowledge hasn't been so heavily erased there right and, and i gotta imagine that a lot of those indigenous frameworks of how they had managed the land play into their understanding of regenerative agriculture right and I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts or comments on that yeah yeah um you know a lot of times folks have kept close to their um their indigenous knowledge of uh, agriculture you know and, and they, they they've kind of kept in touch with that because um for X, Y, Z, or re- X, Y, Z reason, a lot of times they want their farms to become mechanized. You know, they, they, they uh, have a desire for the more mechanized, you know, flatter farm, uh, which, you know, seems like the version of progress, unfortunately, although I, I can assure you it's not. Um, so then they find a way that best works in a small, uh, a small holding, you know, a small farm is to do the same practices that you're, you know, that have been done for thousands of years down there, kind of like milpa um, or like terra pretra, you know, like, you know, these like old indigenous techniques and, and, and really, you know, and agroforestry, forest, you name it. I mean, really indigenous practices, which are really the, the original regenerative agriculture um, and a lot of practices that we, we have in regenerative agriculture come from uh, indigenous practices. Uh, indigenous agriculture. Uh, a lot of it is kept, um, uh, you know, kept hold in Latin America for longer, uh, and existed as like a bank of knowledge that is now being used for this like even bigger resurgence of uh, regenerative agriculture in Latin America. Is because there's just simply more small farms down there in Latin America. Small farms have been, you know, you know, there's still obviously there's still small farms in uh, in in the states, uh, but they compared to what there, how many there used to be? They've basically been wiped out. I mean, really, there, there's there used to be a way more small farms in the U.S. than there are now. Now farms just keep on, you know, conglomerating um, and becoming larger and larger. And these small farms, um, you know, typically these, op- these operations in Latin America are so small that they've never been able to afford that tractor or you know to start bringing in uh different pesticides or or you know just different chemicals and in fashion and in, in total latin american fashion of you know keeping tradition strong they're keeping up with the traditions of their grandparents which are probably on have been on that same land on how they were farming and which is the same way their great 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 grandparents etc you know it goes back a long way to yes to a lot of times to pre-columbian uh, agriculture techniques. You have um, the milpa, which is basically a super highly mixed uh, veggie patch uh, of in, in Central America. Really, really old. Uh, been done for as long as we know by the Mayans. 
and the milpa is like squash, beans, corn, tomatoes, peppers, sunflowers, uh, oof, a, a mix of other things, all just kind of broadcast, uh, broadcasted out in, in right proportions. And uh, things just kind of take off. Um, and they do burn, these are sustainable burns, you know, burn uh, these, these areas where they're going to plant it right before they do. And that kind of eliminates the noxious weed bank, um, you know, weed seed bank. It, um, it uh, you know, probably burns off some of the pests, uh, seeds, uh, or sorry, pest eggs or larvae that have left uh, behind from last season and introduces a ton of fertility to the ground. Uh, I mean, it's ash. Uh, it's like adding lime. the process. Absolutely, positively, yeah. And on this scale, you know, on that scale, you know, um, a burning is a totally sustainable uh, process. Um, it's not, you know, this isn't like burning down the Amazon here, you know, which, uh, yeah. So basically because of how, how, uh, small farms have held up for so long in Latin America, that like bank of knowledge of like indigenous farming knowledge has been around for so long, uh, and is there available for the resurgence of the regenerative agriculture movement in Latin America. I mean, you can talk to any, and, and, and obvious examples, you can talk to almost anyone in Latin America about medicinal herbs. Uh, and we can, most of us, even like even city dwellers can go out and identify a good number of uh, wild medicinal plants uh, because, you know, even urbanism is such a new thing in, in, in Latin America. Uh, we're all quite closely uh, connected to the land. Sure. And this uh, ancient knowledge, I guess. Yeah. So uh, I think that kind of brings me to my last question I had for you right now uh, about this. Uh, like what you were just talking about, this idea of the uh, native ecology focused framework that a lot of these traditional regenerative practices have had. Uh, as somebody that has been personally exposed to it, and it sounds like you, this isn't just exposure from your work, but probably your life. How do you deal with some of the, the, the settler colonial mindset that comes in a lot of regenerative agricultural circles? <laughs> Uh, because it is, I'm yeah. sure, a challenge, especially given your own personal experiences. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, um, you know, the, the settler colonial psyche is so deeply entrenched in our society and the way we do things that it 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 has even found ways to manifest itself manifest itself in things like regenerative agriculture. Um, and some examples that come to mind are, you know, um, you're living in a climate like Georgia. Uh, or Alabama or Florida, which is the humid Southeast. And we have, you know, this urge or this like obsession almost to want to have these, uh, you know, Northern European breeds of animals uh, here, like belted Galloways or Scottish Highland cows or, you know, um, or Icelandic sheep. They don't belong down here, <laughs> you know. Uh, that stuff does not belong down here. This is, we, we have to, um, break our ties with uh, European agriculture uh, in some parts of the U.S. because of the difference in in uh, in farming in that in that bioregion, and also um, you know, and it, and it goes beyond that. I mean, if you look at uh, a lot of the plants that we talk about uh, introducing into pastures, like uh, I'm trying to think of some off the top of my head. Uh, but there's a number of, of plants that are, you know, introduced into pasture that are kind of overseeded that are mostly are not native. I mean, most grasses pretty much are non-native to the, to North America, at least that we use. Yeah, at least that we use. You know, like a lot of these, a lot of these grasses we see are not native at all. 
and and there's some really highly productive native grasses that we're not giving enough attention. Uh, uh, in this part of the U.S., eastern gamma grass is magical. Trials that were done by the University of Mississippi um, uh, were the grazing with Hereford uh, cattle. Uh, some of them were on eastern gamma grass. Some of them were on uh, Baya grass. And some of them were on Bermuda grass uh, or some mix like that. But the, er the Hereford cattle that were on, on eastern gamma grass, which is a native grass, put on far more weight and were in better health condition than those of other grasses. So we have, you know, we have the tools here and, and these plants are growing. Um, and so I think we should focus more on, uh, on uh, you know, native, you know, native plants uh, in our pastures. And another one is the way, um, the irony uh, with, with, uh, with how we treat uh, invasive plants, you know, uh, and, and invasive species. Um, invasive plants and invasive, you know, invasive species in general are are just a byproduct of human disturbance. Uh, they weren't here; they they cannot exist in places where we haven't had some sort of impact. Um, and so, it's so easy to come in with this uh, settler colonial mindset and be like, "This is a problem. Uh, this invasive plant is a problem, and we must eliminate it." Gosh, we've been hearing the settler colonial mindset say say that for any kind of thing for so long, and it's it's just a, a term that we have to get rid of um, is this is problematic and we need to get rid of it. It's like, no, why, why is it problematic? What paradigm have you created that has made the invasive species exist and created and made the invasive species uh, be problematic? Because to be honest, kudzu has done more to sequester carbon than most aspiring regenerative farmers have. <laughs> 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 it's a great carbon sequester, you know, and it's, uh, and it's it is destructive as well, you know. But it's you know we we destroyed these environments first, and Pudzu is kind of coming back and and uh, you know undoing a lot of the work that we've done. Um, yeah, and I've heard a kudzu, lot of the damage we've done. Really. Yeah, and I've heard Kudzu is great feed for rabbits as well. Um, so there and, is some utility for it. Yeah, and, and for livestock, mind you, uh, put livestock on, on on in a Kudzu patch. Boy, I mean, they love the taste of it. It's got tons of micronutrients. It's got more protein in it than alfalfa, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and they won't bloat off of it the same. It's, it's a really high forage, uh, high quality forage. Oh, yeah. Very impressive. Yeah. So you'd mentioned like this idea of like moving away from uh, or being more thoughtful about the livestock that we're using. Uh, are there yeah. any, like I, I personally have a lot of land race northeastern species. So like my chickens are Icelandics because they're super hardy and kind of independent. Nice. They're, they're, they're like guinea fowls that don't make as much noise pretty much. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. they want to sleep in the trees. They don't want to like, they, they have no interest in a coop, uh, but they, they pretty much can feed themselves, which is really cool. That's um, awesome. So are there species or uh, breeds that you're familiar with that are a better fit for places like the southeast or the southwest, yeah, definitely. I think um, uh, when it comes to, um, you know, it's it's funny. It's funny to be down here and see and see, you know, being in the hottest part of Georgia, really, and see, you know, uh, Angus and Hereford cows, which are both English breeds. You know, this isn't quite the climate for them, uh, and they do struggle. I mean, they they need tons of. Uh, uh, deworming and fly sprays and but it, it, everyone's like it's got to be this european cow when in reality the, the cows down here that are outperforming them are those that have been um you know 
have been mixed in with uh, some of the Indicus breeds. And the Indicus breeds are like Brahman uh, and Cebu and uh, Senepol and, you know, all those floppy-eared, funny-looking cows. Either when they're hybridized with the European forest cows or are just a standalone uh, breed on their own up here, they do marvelous. I mean, they don't get flies on them. They don't get wormy. They have, uh, they're better for regenerative grazing because they eat more, um, you know, they eat more of what's out there and what's available. I found uh, that just crossing or having a, uh, just a straight up, you know, Indicus uh, breed of any sort. South Pole cows are fantastic. Uh, Beefmaster is a great breeder cow that is, is really uh, well balanced. Uh, there's also some old breeds here, like the piney, like the piney woods cattle, which are like an old heritage breed uh, that are related to like some of the first cows that the Spanish brought here, and have become really, um, uh, you know, accustomed to this in, uh, climate, this environment. And but nonetheless, why is it that in this part, you know, it, it, farmers down here put so much effort into keeping pastures in grass when Forbes keep on wanting to grow back? Grass doesn't always want to grow out here. Sometimes it's four, and the cows aren't eating it that much. So they're spraying and mowing and uh, 2,4-D and atrazine. And, gosh, it's sickening. But goats out here can eat all this stuff, uh, can be grazed regeneratively, uh, don't get flies on them. I haven't seen a single fly on the goats I have out here, not one. They keep a beautiful body condition. When it's hot as hell outside, they're lying out in the sun. Ridiculous. They don't even need the shade. I always give them shade, but they don't even want it there. So, you know, it, it's a cultural thing that we feel uh, the, the, that the U.S. diet, despite of bioregions within the U.S., has to be a monolith. We all want to eat the same diet within the U.S., uh, strangely enough, where in the Southeast, maybe we should be focusing more on, on, uh, on you know, Indicus, uh, Indicus beef and, um, and, and goat meat. I mean, gosh, goat meat is freaking delicious. It's like my favorite. It is. <laughs> yeah. And it's not easy to find depending where you live, too. Despite the fact right. that, like you said, they, they do a lot better in major regions of the North America climate. Um, they're, they're a better fit. Right. Precisely. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we really have to think about if, if we're trying to be regenerative, that we can't just plug and play the system that we want, but really have to listen to what the ecology is telling us is a better Correct. fit. And that also means we have to rethink our food systems and like not just, again, like you were saying, we can't just all keep eating beef, but maybe if you're in this area, the, the diet needs to change towards those local ecological conditions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Joshua, um, I think we're just about wrapping up do you have anything you want to plug for folks that want to that are interested in what you said want to hear more or are interested in the work you're doing great question i i um i can't think of anything i i, I always say i mean um you know my my website is uh, resilient.com and anyone can contact me there just uh they just want to chat i'm always open to just chatting with uh you know fellow fellow farmers or aspiring farmers about some of these questions uh because i you know, I don't want um, some of these tough questions to be a barrier for entry for anyone either to convert to these practices or to get into them in the first place. Sure, so, and that's R-E-S-Y-L-I-E-N dot com? Dot com. You got it. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, Joshua, this has been great. I, I know you've been doing a lot of other really good work that I want to talk to you about in the future. 
Uh, but I think that we'll save that for another day. So thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Hope we speak again sometime in the future.